Welcome to Mostly Books Meets, the weekly podcast for the incurably bookish. We will be talking to authors and creatives from across the world of publishing and discussing the books they have loved. Looking for a recommendation? Then look no further. Head to your favourite cosy spot and let us pick out your next favourite book. On the Mostly Books podcast this week, we have novelist and screenwriter Alice Wynne. Alice Wynne's gorgeous In Memoriam was published on the 9th of March. It follows Elwood and Gaunt, two boarding school boys desperately in love with one another. Together they navigate the highs and lows of school life until World War I comes crashing into their lives, irrevocably changing them and the world they know forever. It is at once a building's roman, a romance and a historical epic. It is no wonder it is already in the Sunday Times bestseller list. Alice Wynne, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Our absolute pleasure. Now, I should let our listeners know that Alice and I have met before because Alice came into Mostly Books to drop off a proof of In Memoriam. And we were talking about the the process that you went through, the the research and sort of how you decided on this um story so this has been a you know a kind of a love project of yours for a little while now how does it feel that it's now out in the world finding its its readership it is so lovely i had coffee with garth greenwell right before it came out i didn't know him but like basically after he gave me a blurb i was like i want to be his friend and i so i <laughs> trying to i'm trying to um sort of friend court him it's not going well but um he he and i had coffee and he said he spoke about something he called like first novel psychosis he was like you people just go a bit mad when they first publish a novel and i felt i felt very insane but now that it's out i do feel much calmer and i think a lot of my sort of madness came from this feeling that it wasn't actually going to happen and it's just so lovely to have it be read by people anyone who likes it you know just even to have a a few people connect to it and and get something out of it makes it all feel worthwhile and so um to have it be read by you know more than a few people is really really special Mm. and to go through that process of being a reader to then having your work read I, i don't know it must be a a sort of a big transition to make in mentally to think that you know people are experiencing your book in the way that you've experienced other people's works that's interesting i mean do you write prose what do you, i feel like we talked about this when i met you in the, in the shop i maybe, do but... yes i do when i'm not book selling i attempt to write i feel i should strongly emphasize the word attempt what what kind of thing now we're here to talk about you so i'll be very brief. all right but it used to be theater but now i'm moving into into prose uh writing for fiction Okay, like a like a, a long form novel type thing. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you you know that when you're writing something, you know, on a word document on your laptop, and you're maybe sending it to friends and they read it as a favor, it feels really, really just improbable that anyone would ever read it for pleasure. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Absolutely. And then to suddenly. You know, the process of then you've sent that and someone said, oh, yes, we really like this. And then they send it to someone else. It feels like once that gets going, that's kind of it's not a cascade because so many things have to happen in order for a book to be published. But, you know, you go from, yes, that handful of friends to now, you know, you've got people that you will never meet, who you'll never have contact with, who that your book is now a part of their kind of internal world almost because i think when you read a book you absorb it in some way well i do think something that's been weird about this is that you know i wrote the book years ago and so i was really upset about world war one 
you know, around 2019, mm. I was really, that was the main thing I was thinking about all the time was World War One, And then I, you know, spent a year and a half reading nothing but World War One literature. Mm. And, and then, I mean, that's not even true. I mean, but anyway, I read a lot of World War One literature and, you know, then I'm, I sort of, I kind of, came out of it I came out the other end and now everyone's like talking to me about World War One I'm like listen we've got to get over the war it's it was a hundred years ago <laughs> like, I think we've got to move on now um, <laughs> I mean no I, I I sort of find myself shocked sometimes when I have to go back in and read the book for some reason mm. by how upsetting it is because I think mm. I you know it really the the it was yeah it's it's pretty brutal I mean not just the book but just you know the the context of the book, World War One is is pretty f- full on. Wow! Stay here for riveting sound bites from Alan. <laughs> World War One is pretty full on. That, uh, <laughs> that will that, they should put that on the cover. Actually, they I should think just, so. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's interesting because I can imagine you've got you know. There's now been a process where your friends were thinking, you know, in 2019. Oh God, Alice is talking about World War One. They made a bingo sheet. No. Oh, yeah, that's they when were like, you know it's bad." Yeah. Well, because I just kept bringing, I would shoehorn it in into every, and like it was like you'd be talking about anything else, and I would just be like, "Well, you know, what's interesting about that is that in the Great War, and everyone would be like, <laughs> no one cares about the Great War." Yeah, no, they they um, I really ruined a lot of parties. Yes, and now I imagine yes, the reverse is happening. They're sort of going, "Oh, you know, I read this bit, and you're thinking, oh yeah, whatever, you know, I've done that now." That's, well, almost yeah. like I don't want to, you know, it's not I. I I don't want to, I, obviously it's, it's lovely to be talking to people who are in it, but I'm sort of, um, being kind of brought back to all the horror of it in, mm. in conversations with people who have read the book. And it just kind of, I think I, I'm almost like, God, I really, I can't believe I spent so much time in it, like so much sustained time in it because, uh, you know, it's so incredibly upsetting, you know, when you think about all the literature from that time period, mm. not that my book is incredible. My book's really fun. You should read it, listeners. It's very light-hearted. Yes, um, it's, a, it's a rock. It is. <laughs> but, it, <laughs> but it does, you know, like anything, it has, you know, it has those very necessary sort of light points and, and moments of humour and that, you know, must have, I'm sure, sustained people at the time as well. Yeah, you, you really see that in the literature. You know, people are funny. If you read, I mean, just Journey's End. I don't know if you've read Journey's End or seen it, but it, you know, it's funny as a play. Mm. And do you find, because of course we're, I, I feel in the UK, we're sort of, in many ways, we're steeped on, I mean, maybe more so the Second World War now, but kind of, you know, war, the two world wars is kind of a big part of our past and a part of our national identity. And I feel with younger people, there can sometimes be a sort of fatigue with that. And I'm sort of imagining you, you know, talking about World War One with your friends and then thinking, oh my goodness, we don't want to talk about this. But then you pick up something like In Memoriam and you are even though we know, because we're given sometimes the figures and the kind of hard facts, but when you're reading about people experiencing these unimaginable horrors, it's suddenly, it's renewed to you. It feels refreshed in some way. I think that is definitely part of the appeal of In Memoriam is that, you know, in some ways it's not even particularly original. It's just that people aren't going to be reading, you know, Siegfried Sassoon's three-part autobiographical memoir novel 
series where the first one is just about him playing cricket and then the second one has all this stuff but it's you know it's it's not they're not they're not easy reading and mm. i think that the and memoriam is sort of a, a an approachable entry point in a way but and maybe this says more about my friendship group than about sort of youth at large but my british friends my american friends don't really like world war one is kind of a niche war in america because they mm. they weren't really i mean we weren't really in it um but it my British friends actually all had very emotional ties to World War. Like I, I would talk about the book to them, and they all had some kind of perspective on the war that they like. Clearly, they had all thought about it in some different mm. way. You know, I remember one time I, I was um, I was walking through London talking to a friend of mine about the book, and she told me that when she was a little girl, her grandfather used to sing her World War One soldier songs, and then she started singing me one, and she started crying, and I was like, "Wow, this is this is really an ongoing <laughs> thing, huh?" You know, and I I don't know. I think I think a lot of people it's really left a mark on Britain, uh, and I think Europe, but but in in Britain, there's the war mon- monuments everywhere. Mm. I don't know. I think I think uh, it has culturally had quite a strong effect i think on, on a lot of people in britain so i think this idea of people in britain thinking of it as like a fuddy-duddy war maybe yeah i'm sure that is the case uh but i think also on the flip side a lot of people really do see the pathos of it mm. i suppose i was try- trying to more express that because of that you know every town has its um or you know most towns have their war memorials and things like that it becomes a sort of a part of the everyday and because it's a part of the everyday it can be easy to kind of forget exactly how horrifying it was and then you find yourself getting emotionally involved in two characters and they experience the war and suddenly it feels you are reminded of exactly you know what 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 it is that i suppose things like remembrance day and those war memorials were trying to grasp at but in a way that you know, once you read it, you feel actually is quite, uh, you can never quite fully articulate that in a monument or in a kind of Remembrance Day service. No, it's interesting reading in the the school newspapers that I read that gave me mm. the sort of start on this, on this novel. You know, if you're reading papers from 1919, there's all these sort of letters to the editor of people being like, I'm outraged by your proposal that this is what the war mon- monument should be like. Clearly, that's a bad war monument. We should have, the- and everyone has such strong opinions about how you memorialize this war, because there was such a feeling of like, never forget, never again. And that's, you know, that's the... It- on a kind of macro scale, that's the the saddest part of World War One is that it's really just World War Two Part One, you know. Mm. So it's so you know pathetic in a way. I mean, that's the wrong word, but it's so it. You see these people just desperately saying, you know, peace forever, war to end all world wars, and you know, we from our position in history, we know how completely futile that is. Absolutely. I would like to, if you don't mind, I'm going to put a pin in now for talking about In Memoriam because we'll we'll go back to it later on. And I'd like to talk a bit more about you, both as a person and as a reader. Now, am I right in saying from reading your sort of biography on the back, you know, it mentions you were born in Paris. Is that correct? And, yes. And then you, you were educated in the UK. Um, yeah. My parents are li- American. Your parents are American. I'm, I'm and you American. live in America now. Yes, you're an I American. Do, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, there's also something interesting in that as well because I think there's a there's a you know uh, a gaunt in the book experiences kind of you know has a one of these nationalities where you know he kind of identifies with England but you know is is also German as well and the kind of difficulties of that um, which is very interesting. I think Gaunt and Elwood both 
because Elwood is is um, ethnically Jewish, although culturally Christian, and I think they both feel that they have a sort of tenuous hold on England. Mm. And especially at the beginning of the novel, they're both rather in love with England and yet feel that they sort of have to grip it very tightly in order to really feel as if they belong, um, because they're both insider-outsiders, which is, you know, relevant to me. <laughs> yes, yeah, of course, yeah. And, um, and you know, being educated in the UK, what was, if you don't mind me asking, what was your experience of that as, you know, someone who is uh, American, but you would been born elsewhere and you know you must see things maybe slightly differently or or maybe you don't well you know i went through the public school system in england and so that's a very different experience from what most people experience Mm. isn't it it's like seven percent of the population or something i don't even know it's it's small so yeah i don't know it was sort of fascinating i sort of uh really like i think i i really liked the education I've never been a good student anywhere but in Britain. So like in Fr- I was also educated in France and, and in America and in in Paris and in LA where I was also in school I was always just a terrible student because they <laughs> have this system whereby um it's kind of a, a a marathon like you just have to continually do quizzes and tests all through the year and they all they're cumulative. I remember when I was like maybe 15 in LA and I I would just I was like well whatever I'll just I'll skive off for the year and then at the end of the year I'll, t- I'll do really well on the test because that's that's how it works in England. Mm, you, yeah, you, you skive yeah. off for a year and yeah. then you work hard <laughs> at the end and then and then it all goes fine. Um, but so I remember I you know I skived off the whole year. Everyone was very worried about me, but I was like, okay, guys, you don't know how well I'm going to do on this test. And then I do the test and it turns out it's fifteen percent of the final grade. So you you know you've just got to work all the time really really boring i yeah i just never not fat and also it's the specialization thing you know i was working so hard to make my sort of maths and science grades a, a, a c that my english and french and history grades would fall down to a, a b and it was just i was just a blah um whereas in england you know that chance to specialize meant that I was able to just focus on the things I wanted to focus. I just, I really, I really, um, yeah, I, I really like that system. I, I, I can't speak to how different it is in the, in the state school sector, but, you know, I had a good experience. But then, you know, I, it's not a good system overall, is it, for, for you know, the country at large. So there's, there's this, I have a lot of conflicted feelings because mm. I think, politically speaking, I feel differently from emotionally, if that makes sense. Mm which I think is true, you know, for many people on many different subjects. And that and that's expressed beautifully in the book as well, I think, that, you know, the love, and certainly when they're in the trenches, the fond memories of their school and the memories from that and how much they love their time there. But the flip side of that as well, in terms of the class element, is expressed beautifully in, in Memoriam, uh, as well as the fact that not everyone did have a good time at, at the school. And I'm thinking of a particular uh, scene there where someone expresses that actually, you know, what do you mean you loved it there? Actually, uh, you know, I I had a horrible time. And and that, that vein throughout be, the book is lovely. It can be quite brutal, you know, sorry to interrupt. Uh, yeah, it is, it is, you know, I went, I went to school when I was eight and if you have a bad day, in a normal school, you go home at the end and hopefully, you know, if you're lucky, you've got loving parents and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, you had a bad day. But if you if you had a bad day in boarding school, you know, you go home and you're still in the same room as the people <laughs> who are making your life misery. So you're, you know, and then you can hear them talking about you while you're trying to go to sleep. And it's just, so it is, it is pretty um, intense in the pleasures and the miseries. 
And of course, Elwood in the book is a very, you know, well-read person and is, you know, deep into his love of poetry. And as a young person yourself, were you much of a reader when you were at school? Did you enjoy reading or, or did that come later on for you? So I couldn't read till I was nine because I had quite bad dyslexia. Uh, and then I made up for lost time and read a lot. And with the exception of there were a couple of years in my teenage years where I was I was busy doing other things and I didn't I didn't really read much. But yeah, no, I think I especially in my late teens, I was yeah, I definitely relate to the way that Elwood reads. Mm. Did you read a lot when you were younger? Uh no, and interestingly for the same thing, I'm also dyslexic and so for me really? that came yes, yeah, yeah. That came much much later on. As a kid, you know, people People tried to talk to me about books they read as a child. I mean, we I do it on this podcast all the time. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't read that because I started reading later on. And I, there's some books I'd love to sort of go back and, you know, experience again. I think, you know, all books are kind of for everyone. It doesn't matter what kind of yeah, age yeah. They're, they're given. Um, but yeah, no, it wasn't until I, I was 18 that I really properly picked up a novel and read it front to back. For pleasure. Mm. That's so interesting. And um, when you fell in love with reading, was it fast or was it slow? It was relatively fast, but I think if I'm being perfectly honest with myself, I think there was a little bit of a, at the beginning, a prestige reading thing of for course, me. Of course, me too. It was, yeah, I was 18 and a friend gave me To Kill a Mockingbird and I, I did really enjoy it and I thought it was a great book, but I was aware that it was also a great book in kind of, you know, capital letters. And so for a while, I think I tried to stay on that track and it's only really as a fully grown adult that I've realised that's a kind of futile Attempt. Well, that's so interesting because that's also what I was like when I first started reading. I was I, I did read children's books, but I also really read, you know, one of my earliest like books that I read myself was Jane Eyre. And I remember that the teachers at school were like, you're reading Jane Eyre? And I was like, that's right, I'm reading Jane Eyre. <laughs> and it was like, you thought I couldn't read? Well, I couldn't a month ago, but now I'm reading Jane And it was like, it was this, you know, it was this yeah. feedback loop of like, of getting, of going from having felt like such a, you know, a dunce mm. to having people be like, wow, it's really impressive that you're reading that. And I was reading a lot of books that I, you know, I remember I read Thackeray's Vanity Fair when I was about 10 and I, definitely could not understand all of it you know and I just had this approach where I would just I was just like well whatever I'll just read it mm. and if I miss sort of 45% of what's going on that's fine and yeah I don't know it was definitely the prestige was it was motivating mm. it is motivating but you can also get to points where you wrong foot yourself or you you put an obstacle in your way because I remember I was one of those you know people in their late teens who thought do you know what I'm going to read Ulysses by James Choice and I'm mm -hmm. going to love it because yeah. <laughs> I love big books and I'm really smart. And then I picked it up and, I, you know, I could tell it was clever, but I didn't know why and I didn't know exactly what it was doing. And so in my head, I was like, oh, well, that's actually because I'm profoundly stupid and I should be greatly humbled. And I think the moment you kind of throw the shackles off and you kind of go, you know, I, I will read books that I want to read. And if I start reading something and it's not for me, that's fine. I think you develop a great, uh, a deeper love for it. But is it, I don't, I didn't get there till I was like 22 in terms of, I, until mm. I was 22, I, I had a basic rule, which was that I'd only read books by authors who were dead. And then when I was doing my finals at university, I then started, I was just reading so much literature by people who were dead that I was like, I've got to just, so I think I picked up Gone Girl. And I was right. like, this is so fun. Yeah. <laughs> wow, yeah. it's so easy to read this compared to like, you know, Wilkie Collins or whatever. And it mm. was, um, 
it was kind of eye-opening but I you know honestly I don't regret it uh because I I really love having this kind of base of and also you know honestly I think it's because I'm lazy I like I like reading books by canonical authors and not just you know like picking different types of canons right Mm. because it's it's already stood the test of time like if people are still reading a book 50 years after it came out like that's a pretty good sign you you at least know that you're gonna you're gonna get something out of it Although I realise I'm speaking to a bookseller who specialises in selling, you know, new and upcoming books. I do also read <laughs> debut novels. No, and that's no, why you that's should read mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. We sell, we sell, I now sound like I'm plugging the shop. We sell everything at Mostly Books, both classics mm. and, and new and new debut fiction. Sounds like you should check it out. Mostly yes, books. yeah, check out our website. It's www. No. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I think I went through a journey of initially kind of embracing everything kind of, you know, classic, uh, the, the classics, and then rejecting that and going, I'm going to read all the modern sort of mm. kooky stuff. And then, yes, realising, you know, I, I picked up Pride and Prejudice and I'm like this is a banging book this is a great you know this is so good there is a reason why it's classic I did write down because um I was thinking about favorite books as a child Mm. and I think one that I I mean obviously I had I had a lot because my mother read to me um Mm. a lot and one of my favorites is the story of the treasure seekers by Inez Bitt she did you know five children and it and the phoenix in the carpet so she was writing in the Edwardian era, and um, I kind of picked this one to talk about because I think it's it's relevant to In Memoriam, right? Because these are the books. Inez is the kind of writer who boys at the school in In Memoriam would have grown up reading. You know, she was a big deal because, especially in the Victorian era, there were a lot of sort of morality tales for children. It was a lot of like, you know, Elsie, Elsie's brother like stole a bit of pie, and then Elsie told on him, and Elsie died, and she went straight to heaven. And the children in Inesbit are so lifelike. And it's usually, you know, a bunch of siblings and they all bicker and get on each other's nerves and like they do a lot of wrong things. And it's just much more realistic and they're they're very funny. They are also, generally speaking, racist. Like if you pick a book where that doesn't come up, it's sort of, that's kind of luck. I don't know enough about Inez Bit to know if she was especially racist for her time. I think she might just be kind of representative of her time. But yeah, there are definitely times when like they, you know, they, um, oh yeah, actually in The Treasure Seekers, there is there is an anti-Semitic bit for sure. So The Treasure Seekers is, um, it's one of her few non-magical books. And it's this story of these six children, the Bastable children, and their mother died and their father has fallen on hard times. And so they decide and they're going to take it in turns to come up with brilliant plans to make the, the Bastable family fortune return again. And the problem is that all of their plans are really stupid. It's things like, you know, they know there's this lord who like walks on Hampstead Heath or something and they make their dog attack him and then they make one of the boys come up and save the Lord from the dog and then right. they anticipate that the Lord will be so grateful he will ad- adopt Oswald and or whoever it is and then their the family fortunes will be made but in fact the Lord is just like did you set your dog on me and they're like uh <laughs> um so there's a lot of, of stuff like that they get into a um what's it called is it like MLM like you know those um those schemes where, like, you buy a bunch of knives and sell the knives to all your friends and then they have to sell all the knives to their... Yeah, yeah. So they get into one of those with this really horrible, like, wine that they buy from a catalogue and they keep trying to sell the wine to everyone who comes to the house. 
but they've like they thought the wine was gross so they put a bunch of sugar in it and it makes it even more disgusting and it's just right. anyway they're very they're very very funny and the conceit of the book is that it's told by one of the bastables and the the narrator is like I won't tell you which of the bastable children I am but whenever the narrator talks about Oswald Bastable the oldest boy the narrator is always like and Oswald who was the bravest and most intelligent of the bastable Great. children Great. and it's really funny and and the thing also that is I, I have this in my acknowledgements, but my mother, when she was reading these books to me, she would kind of stop mid-sentence and just be like, Oswald is just the right age to be killed in the trenches. And I'd be like, oh, no. <laughs> She'd be like, oh, all of these oh, boys goodness. are going to sign up. <laughs> They're all going to go to the front. <laughs> so it was really, yeah, that felt Great. very, the war was encroaching. Because the other thing is that boys in, in, in bit books are all obsessed with soldiers like half yeah. of them except for noel who uh, is clearly gay uh, and very very into poetry and just wants to right. um hang out with the girls but i mean maybe i'm making an assumption here about noel but noel is great anyway but apart from him the other characters are all these like these like macho little boys who can't wait to go fight for the empire and my mother would always really hammer home to me that they would they would probably all die and it was very very demoralizing <laughs> What is it about mums? And I don't know, I feel just death slips into, it's a huge generalisation, but I feel when I talk to my mum, it's always, oh yes, well, I went to the shops the other day, Dottie up the road, yet she's dead. And <laughs> I got four cans of soup and I got some milk. And it's just like, it's just there. It's just like, on the, and you're like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, fine. <laughs> it's interesting because I think it'd be easy to sort of think, and I know five children in it, I must say not from reading it, but from seeing, I don't know when it would have been made, maybe the eighties, but a TV adaptation that I grew up watching because my mum mm -hmm. loved it and she had shown it to my sister. So I know, I know the story so well but the way you explain you know the story there it, it sounds so except for those things that you mentioned like the racism or the anti-semitism mm. it feels very contemporary in many ways you know that i love that whole thing of you don't know who the narrator is but you do know by the yeah. way it's written and and these things that kind of humanize history which i think is again very easy to see in a, a kind of a, a 2d kind of sense Absolutely. Yeah. No, there, and I think I think the fact that the humor still rings true is is pretty impressive. Also, one of the protagonists of the Bastables is called Alice, and she is one of the reasons I am called Alice. Oh, oh wow. Okay. So your 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 mother then obviously had like a great love for, for Yeah, for but these she stories. my mother my mother has read um, too too many books, I would say. Okay, okay. She's taken it too far. And um so she has many, many favorite books. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to to say yes the bastables is my mother's favorite book that no. would be misleading but it's interesting you know I, I do love from that story there of you know oh and he would be old enough to die in the trenches and mm -hmm. you know and the kind of the the period that you're reading from there it's obviously that this book it's easy to say now looking back oh this book was obviously a turning point in terms of what led to in memoriam but it does you know it feels like it, it had some yeah, well, I, you know, it was just, I was always really interested in the Edwardian era. And interestingly enough, there was actually a book that I think did quite well a few years ago. Um, I can't remember exactly. It was something like Five Go on the Western Front or something like that. And it was a sequel to Five Children and It about World War One. And it um, it was, a you know, it was a children's book, but it was, it was um, very, very vivid and good. Yeah, I don't know if you... 
It came uh, out like six years ago, probably. Mm, um, unfortunately, I'd love to do the bookseller thing of someone mentioning vaguely what a cover looks like and going, oh, yes, you mean this book. No, mm. unfortunately, I don't. But I will look it up after. But that's what this podcast is for. It's for recommending books. You are a bookseller for the day and you're, you know, you're recommending um, uh, me books as well. I was so jealous of all the booksellers when I went on my proof tour because it just seems like such a lovely job. And also all the booksellers, every every shop I went to, there was this kind of like every, the, the camaraderie of like fellow booksellers. It was like mm. you were kind of having a, it just feels like, it feels like every bookshop I went to should have had its own little sitcom about the booksellers. That's like they were living their own little sitcom life. And I was just a, I was a guest star and I was like, I want to be in the sitcom. That looks really fun. Visiting star like Alice Wynn for the, you know, yeah, for that particular episode. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, it's very interesting. There is a, yeah, it's a very particular community. It doesn't matter what social media app you're on. There will be a whole section of it dedicated to kind of booksellers. In the same on TikTok, there's book talk, but there are, I feel there's like a subsection which are specifically booksellers as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I just, I also read grown up books for grown ups. Yes. Tell me about those grown up books for grown ups that you have read and enjoyed. Well, so you asked me ahead of time uh, to think about a couple of books. And so the first is Lote by Shola von Reinhold, which is this book that came out in 2020. And I kept getting recommended it. So it's about this young black woman who is obsessed with the bright young things of the 1920s. And she dresses, you know, in elaborate costumes. And she's really, really fascinated in, in the kind of like seriousness of pleasure and partying. But there is this tension, right? The bright young things of the 1920s were predominantly white. And so one day she's searching through the archives at this museum and she finds this picture of this, you know, gloriously beautiful, glamorous black girl in a picture with several of her favorite bright young things. And she figures out that she is this poetess uh, called Hermia Druid. But there's almost nothing about this woman. Like she's impossible to find. Like there's one book that talks about her, but that book has been out of print. And like, you, you know, the woman who wrote the book is dead. And it's like, she has to you know, really, really like, it's like a, a, a mission to find out anything about this woman. And she ends up tracking down the traces of this, this woman who, you know, was a kind of key figure in The Bright Young Things, but there's almost nothing about her. She's been like buried. She's been sort of disappeared from history. And so our protagonist, Matilda, ends up going to Europe, to an undisclosed European country, where she ends up joining this sort of, um, this art program that's sort of half art program, half cult. And the secrets all sort of merge in this cult in this European town um, where in the town there's there's also this very beautiful, very sad, very tragic trans woman who is also looking for the poetess. She's also black. And so it's just this, it's this really, really good read in that like the the plot is banging. You're like, oh my God, like what happened to the poetess? Like, did she die? Did someone kill her? What happened? Like what happened to her? And why is there no trace of her in history? And like what happened? She, you know, she published all these poems and they've all just disappeared. And our protagonist has basically joined this cult to try and find out about her. And the cult is like incredibly white and she's the only black person there. And you're like, what's going to happen next? But on the other hand, it's also incredibly, it's funny and it's really, really sort of philosophical. And it talks in incredibly intelligent, but accessible terms about the tension of being 
a black person who is sort of nostalgic for this Eurocentric version of beauty and like how Matilda kind of negotiates that. And then, it, you know, it also deals with queerness and transness and, and class. I mean, it's just it, it, the, the number of plates that are spinning, you know, effortlessly in this novel that's actually really fun to read. I just, I was so, so impressed and, and enthralled. I, I really, really thought it was, it was incredible. I wish more people would read it. God, you've absolutely sold that to me. That sounds, really? Yes, Great. you should work as a bookseller because that would, <laughs> I would be, if you had that in your hands now, I'd be snatching it out of them. Well, politely. In yeah, order good. to Yeah, in order to uh, to buy it. That sounds absolutely fascinating. And, and, and did you read it in a short space of time? It sounds very compelling. I, you know, I, I, so it is compelling and I, I found myself picking it up a lot, but... I also was, it was one of these books that you, you also keep reaching for a pencil. So I didn't, I did not storm through it no. because I kept underlining things and writing things down because it, it, it has so many ideas in it that you're like, Ooh, what is that? Good point, Shola. Good point. So it wasn't, it wasn't like a, you know, like my, that discovery of Gone Girl being such a quick read. It wasn't like that. But uh, yeah, no, it was, it, I just, I, I really wanted it to be a TV show. That's what I want. Yes, I do. I feel it's funny. I think um, sometimes in not to wholly, but in the book world, you know, there can be a, a bit of a shyness to admit that maybe you've seen the TV adaptation before you read the book or things like mm -hmm. that, which happens, you know, it, ha it happens all the time. Or to say that you've read a book, it feels like you're sort of, you know, discrediting it by saying that, mm. you know, it wasn't enough as a book. I want to see it. But I think it just expresses that you loved the world so much or the characters so much you would happily experience that again in a different mm -hmm. medium i think that all the time with books that i would love to see it well i think especially with load it's so aesthetic it's it, you know it's so much about beauty that it just seems so obvious that a, a good companion to the book would mm. be something more visual and I suppose, do you, because you're a screenwriter as well, aren't you? you well, I write you, screenplays. I wouldn't, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like there's a difference. I feel like uh, going into my, like, they always say that it doesn't matter that, you know, you should go, yes, I am, as opposed to a... Uh... You know, they always do say that, but I, I really take issue with that because the problem with, I always found this when I, you know, when I was sort of labouring in obscurity, scribbling my unwanted, unpublishable novels, and people would be like, you should just say you're a writer. And I was like, no, because that... If you go to a party and say, I'm a writer, and then people are like, what have you published? Then you're like, well, you're on the back foot. Whereas if you go and you say, well, I write yeah. novels, and then people go, you should really call yourself a novel. And you're like, no, I don't know. And then you get to be all humble and they get to reassure you. It's a much better dynamic. Mm. Oh, very good. That's, yeah, you've... you've, you've I've persuaded yeah, you, have I? Yeah, you have. You've I've, really thought I've... about the dynamic <laughs> there. No, I, I, I must agree. It's easier said than done. Because it always comes with that question of, oh, yeah, have you done anything I would recognise? And I'm like, unless you've somehow hacked into my computer and decided <laughs> to read some of the worst things you've ever read, then no. So, no, you wouldn't have. Uh, but uh, give it time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I look forward to reading your published books. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. Well, I wanted to tell you about the second book that I had. Yes, please. I wanted to talk about, sorry, I've been proselytising about both these books. So I only just read... Hilary Mantel's A Place of Greater Safety. Have you mm. read it? No, I've read the Wolf Hall trilogy, you, but you not. So I actually haven't finished the Wolf Hall trilogy because uh, the last one is just so long, but I, I will one day probably. But um, so A Place of Greater Safety is about the French Revolution and it is so good. Okay, so let me set the scene. It is about the friendship between 
these three revolutionaries, some of which you may have heard of. So first you have Danton, who is described as erotically ugly. And then you have Camille Desmoulins, who is sort of chaotically bisexual, and he's this like vicious journalist, but also has a stutter. And whenever anyone attacks him, he starts stuttering, and he's really pretty. And everyone's just like, oh, don't attack Camille. And then he goes back and writes nasty journalistic screeds against them all. And then the last one is Robespierre, right, who is described as being terrified of violence. So these three men are sort of besties slash frenemies and um, it follows them from their birth all the way to the terror in 1793 and the emotional maths of this book is just incredible because the relationship between the three of them is is so weird and compelling because Camille Desmoulins is like maybe a bit in love with Danton and Danton is in love with Camille's wife and Camille's wife is in love with Camille and Robespierre doesn't have any friends except for Camille and he is and Camille has a thousand friends he's incredibly popular and so Robespierre just kind of wishes that Camille would just hang out with him but then Camille brings Danton over and Robespierre has to pretend he likes Danton even though he doesn't really like Danton but he likes Camille he'll do whatever Camille says and then Danton doesn't really like Robespierre but he also feels a fondness for, and it's just like the dynamic it's just like so complicated and then you bring in all the other revolutionaries and how they all relate to this and that's just kind of not even that's sort of the B story right because the A story is the revolution and she does this really brilliant thing where it's kind of she head hops right so you're you're mainly in those three characters heads but you also kind of jump around and it's often in these like small little paragraphs of different people's perspectives and then in the middle of a chunk of paragraphs she'll just do something like you know it's we're in like the 1780s and she'll just drop in statistics about the inflation of bread prices in the last three years and then she just moves on. And you're like, oh, that makes me feel very sad and worried. And yeah, I don't know. And it's really, really big. But what that does is it really makes you feel, you know, the revolution breaks out in 1789. And then um, the terror is 1793. And so what she really makes you feel is that those kind of three or four years before the terror happens, they just feel like years you know, when you're looking at it on paper, you're like, okay, so the revolution was like, you know, roughly 10 years and uh, okay. But it makes you feel like, God, this has just been dragging on forever, you know, and it's just still going on. It's such a mess and no one knows how to fix it. And everyone keeps coming up with different ideas for how to fix it. And it just beca- it's just spiraling out of control. And, oh God, I mean, it just it gave, gave me such a hangover when I finished it. I felt like something bad had happened in my personal life for like two days. Maybe that's not a good reason to read a book, but I, I I recommend it. No, I think that's a great reason to read a book. And you've you've absolutely sold that to me as well, which, you know, I mean, with it being Hilary Mantel, who, you know, I mean, uh, I remember the first, I think particularly for it was Bring Up the Bodies for me, mm. finishing that book and just wanting to sort of climb into her mind. She had a sort of interesting career. If you're listening and you're, you know, an aspiring writer, something I thought was kind of inspirational about Hilary Mantel is that she really didn't push through until until Wolf Hall. She was getting good reviews and stuff, but she really was not selling books. And she wrote, I'm, I'm making this up, but it was it was many novels, like something like nine novels before Wolf Hall. And it was quite late in life. So, um, you know, I, I was like highlighting stories like that because I think stories about, you know, young whippersnappers coming out with their with their works of deathless prose is, is sort of exhausting to hear about. Yes, absolutely. I think you can get, uh, it's kind of easy to champion in the kind of, you know, national conversation about books, kind of, oh, you know, the kind of new young thing. But 
that actually... Well, it's usually classist, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, if you have dependence and, you know, if you're if you're in debt and if you, you know, basically, if you're financially strained, the chances of you coming out with the work of Deathless Pros at the age of 23 are very slim. So it's very, um, I don't know, it seems very, it seems very elitist, I think, all yes. the fixation on youth. I think if we got into the conversation about uh, the publishing industry and class <laughs> and elitism, I think we could be here for a very long time. But, um, but yes, Let's move on. Let's move on. Let's move on. So... Uh, another question we love to ask on the podcast is a uh, a book that for you is a favourite book or a book that you recommend to everyone, something that really stands out for you. So I really, really love James Baldwin's Giovanni's Room. It's a book. So I often, because I write reviews of books on my um, Instagram and I often get people DMing me and being like, look, I, I used to read a lot when I was younger and I just don't read anymore and I really want to get back into it. What would you recommend? And I often recommend this because uh, it is exquisitely beautifully written. I mean, the, the quality of James Baldwin's prose is unreal. It's really like magic. Um, he has this piece of writer's advice that I always come back to, which is it's something like, you want every sentence to be clean as a bone that is the aim. It's something like that. I, I, I might have butchered it. But um, so the, the just the writing is so gorgeous. And it's also one of the most like feelsy emotional stories I've ever read. And it is a it is a gay love story, but a really sad one in that the opening chapter, it's actually kind of a bisexual love story, really. I think people forget about that. But it opens with this guy thinking about how his he, he like he, his lover is going to be executed that day and it's like it's like 1950s paris and then we just go and find out we like see their love story and so you know immediately that this is a love story that's going to end in one of them being executed so that just casts this pool across the whole i mean you're reading it and you're just like maybe there's a twist and it'll all be fine and what james baldwin said was he said something about how he didn't even think it was a book about homosexuality. He thought it was a book about people who are so scared that finally they end up not being able to be loved by anyone, which I think is exactly right. It's this character who just doesn't, he's just so scared of the stakes of letting someone love him. And that ends up being, you know, the most frightening thing of all. And it's just, yeah, it's Paris, it's the 50s, it's gay love, bisexual love, tragedy, and gorgeous writing and it's not very long and everyone I've ever recommended it to has read it like really fast and then been hung over from it so it just seems like you know especially if you're if you're kind of in a bit of a slump it sort of short circuits the slump sometimes I think because it's it's just so visceral oh that's a, a really lovely way of putting it because sometimes that's what you need it's almost like a book as a a palate cleanser is the wrong word but it it, it's something that kind of reignites your your love of reading. Mm. And yet Giovanni's Room, I, yes, I, I, I think of the edition that we've had at work, you know, it is a small piece of writing, but sometimes those small books, you know, they can they can really pack a punch. And it sounds like Giovanni's Room is, is a case of that. It's one of the best books I've ever read. I think if I had to pick like two of the best just written books, I would say that and Anna Karenina for me um, come mm. to mind. Which is not to say they're, my, they're necessarily my favourite books, but I, I, no. I was saying to someone that really my favourite books, I probably have like 45 favourite books and picking three of them makes it seem as if the other 42 are, are less important than they are. So I kind of, yeah, I like picking Giovanni's Room because I do think it's, you know, it, 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 it's superlatively well written. And I think a lot of people would like it if they give it a go. 
Yes, asking people to rank books is kind of, um, it's quite a cruel thing to do, actually. And I'm, I'm aware on the podcast, <laughs> when we ask these questions, I think I actually couldn't answer that. You know, I'm like, I'm, yeah. what a hypocrite. I'm, ask, I'm asking questions that I, I would struggle to um, answer myself because I think books are, it's so hard to pick out a single book and go, this one in particular, you know, somehow trumps others. Because on, on what playing field? Because you know two different books that deal with the exact same subject can leave you with a a host of different emotions or can do brilliant things but in very in very different ways mm. I mean I guess it's it's important not to I, I overthink it and I'm like well I've got to be really honest I don't want to misrepresent and it's like I, I was saying this to my um, my publicist and I was like you know I don't Chloe what do I they they keep asking what my favorite book is and and she was like Alice like fundamentally they don't really care what your favorite book is like they they care about <laughs> they care about the fact that you you wrote this book and that's what they're interested mm. in and like if you have another book that that they might like if they also liked yours then that's really what matters and I was like oh that's a yeah you're right I'm really overthinking this I'm like I must be honest <laughs> we're like you don't know but just like out of sight I'm just like writing a score down of your answers like oh really okay like oh. 3.5 you know oh, no how am I doing how am I but doing it's oh. you know it's we do yeah it's 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 absolutely true we you know we ask these questions because it is interesting to see kind of what someone's reading background is but I suppose it is a, a way in sometimes of kind of knowing knowing the mind of the person who's written in memoriam and um it, it sounds like you know i don't know the books that we've discussed about there are a lot of themes there you know you, you, that childhood book you read and the fact that your mom would go um oh they were old enough to die in the trenches <laughs> which i laugh about every time i think of um, how wonderfully dark that is um and uh, you know and then you've got giovanni's room which is this kind of um uh, beautiful um bisexual sort of queer in the wider context um um love story and of course all of these come together in in memoriam um with the idea of in memoriam exactly when when did that come about did it start with the war did it start with the love story what was the kind of in for you well i was trying not to write a novel because i had written three novels and had had zero success with them sending them out to agents and so i was um, trying to focus on screenwriting and i mm. had been given some edits on a screenplay that i was supposed to be doing and I was procrastinating on them and well you know Siegfried Sassoon went to my old boarding school and I remember I was just like oh I wonder I was reading Robert Graves and I was like I wonder if Siegfried Sassoon wrote any poetry um in the school paper while he was there so I went and looked and he didn't um he actually really did not like the school very much but um <laughs> he uh yeah so he hadn't done it but um the school had uploaded the newspapers from the early part of the last century and I just got sucked in and I read all the papers from 1913 to 1919 and they were, I mean, they were like nothing else, you know, because they were student papers by the students for the students and, you know, they begin and it's just these, you know, it's these public school boys and they're these, you know, they're funny and irreverent and entitled and naive and smug and they have every reason to believe they're going to, you know, inherit the earth. And then the war breaks out and they're so excited. And they all start writing poems about how they're going to, you know, punch the Germans in the face or whatever. Yeah. And they're so, yeah, they can't wait to go fight. And then they all start enlisting and then they enlist and then they, they'll write letters back to the school, which to me has this special kind of poignancy where it's like, you know, these are boys who are so young that when they have to write letters to people, like they can write to their families and they can write to their school and that's sort of the extent of their world. And the letters back to the school paper are things like, you know, oh, it's so great, no one's making me bathe. And then they start dying 
And, you know, it falls to the boys who are still at school to write the memoriams of their older brothers and their friends. And they, these change in texture as well throughout the war. So at the beginning of the war, they're very, um, they're very sort of starry eyed. It's a lot of like, we envy him his gallant death, you know, hopefully we too can give so much to England, that kind of stuff. And then as the war just keeps going, it becomes just much, much, I mean, it's all, it, it just becomes so incredibly raw. And there was this feeling when I was reading them, it felt so voyeuristic because like they're not writing it for an audience. They're writing it just for each other. They're all going through this tragedy together and they're writing it for each other. And there's really no expectation that someone else is going to read it and try and interpret their grief from what they've written. So it, it you know, it's really, really un, I mean, I'm not going to say unedited, but yeah, it's just, it's a, it's very real feeling. And I was reading that and I, um, I think the first thing I did was, you know, the reality of it is that a lot of these newspapers were quite boring. And so what would happen is you would read three pages of quite boring stuff and then there'd be one page where there was an obituary that was just just devastatingly sad. So I would copy, I would write that out, I would type it out. And I just compiled these newspapers that were just made up of the things that were the, like the brightest and the most stark to me. And I was just doing it almost like for my, I don't even know why, I, I, I guess I was procrastinating. So the, the first things I wrote were the newspapers. And then the next thing I wrote, because I was just kind of doodling around in my head, if you, if you know what I mean, sort of pottering around this idea. Just, I was just thinking about it a lot because I'd also been reading the Robert Graves. And the next thing I wrote was just two letters. It was a letter from one boy to another and, and back. And these letters were not, they didn't make it into the book and they weren't really the same characters exactly even. But it was just, it was a, a young boy who had been injured receiving a letter from a, a boy who somehow had got out of, I don't even remember, but like there was all this weird tension beneath the surface of these two letters. And I was like, oh, these two characters are in love with each other. And then I just went with it. And then I wrote most of the book really, really fast in about two weeks. And then I don't get excited. I then spent a year and a half editing it. So it was, <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't just like, you know, cause I think, isn't there like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that was written in like nine days on a cocaine binge from what I remember. So that's, you know, that's truly impressive. This was, you know, this was, um, it took ages to edit it into something that made sense potential writers out there i'd just like to state mostly books does not recommend uh cocaine binges <laughs> as the way to finish your manuscript no um, i wonder how many it. books have been written on nine day cocaine binges that are not mm. <laughs> that are not classics probably quite a few well i might be wrong but am i right in saying that the first world war fell into the period that they call the sort of the great binge because basically a lot of the drugs that we now consider sort of illicit and legal and uh, you know hard to come by unless you know the right people were actually quite readily available and were sort of being given out on the trenches and and things like that i don't know if that aligns with any of the research that you did or whether i don't know about i i that that's um i haven't read anything about that that does i could definitely believe it mm. yeah no it is interesting because well, they yeah they had a big laudanum problem i think in in I don't know. We're out. We're out of the depth. My depth here. I don't yeah. know the the legalities of things here. But yeah, no. I mean, <laughs> uh, I I could definitely believe things being being um, allowed that way. I feel like in in war, people tend to just give the soldiers whatever they need to to make them fight, don't they? Yeah, to keep them going. And, and but it's interesting what you say about you know the you wrote it in a short space of time, but then the editing process was very long. I do wonder how many of those stories that we hear about. Oh, it was written in. X number of days or weeks actually mean the first draft, which is a very different thing to the final 
Yeah, I wonder. Because I always I remember Shakespeare wrote The Merry Wives of Windsor very fast, but I feel like you mm. can tell. <laughs> a bit, it's a bit of a flabby not, story. Needs it's a bit, not his like, best, you know, is it? Yes. <laughs> He's like, maybe you should go back and do that a bit better, Shakespeare. Billy, go back to work. Yeah, Billy, come on. And, you know, I, it's interesting in terms of the history of, you know, I do not know anything about Shakespeare scholarship, so no one quote me on this. But, you know, it was performed, so I do wonder how much was changed in the moment of an actor said oh i'm not saying that i don't like that line and so oh, yeah that you is know, cutting it and so you know yes he may have written you know i think also othello i think was is is something like written in 10 days i'm going to be very upset uh, if that turns out to be true because othello is one of my favorites and i'm going to be very very shakespeare if that's yeah. how dare you but then <laughs> I, I just wonder if that means you know shakespeare came after 10 days oh i've got this but yeah, the rehearsal then- process Well, something I'm really curious about, and I I would like to read a biography of Dickens, because, you know, he he wrote in installments, and I believe that, at least for some of his books, he did not plot that much ahead of time. So he would, like, write two chapters, publish them, and then write the next two chapters, which reminds me of, like, how people write online, right? Mm. You know, when people are publishing stories online, they'll just be like, well, and here's the two chapters. And then the comments come in and they're like, oh, great. Everyone loves that. And then they carry on in that direction. And I can I think that seems like what what Dickens was doing, which is kind of fascinating. That's a really interesting idea, because, of course, I suppose he would have seen like the letters that people would have sent. And that's uh, I'd love to know, because I've got a difficult. I once tried to read Bleak House and I, I felt to myself, I don't know if this is true at all, but I was like, he was getting paid per word because I just uh, remember people reading say it. that. No, I, I mean, so I think it is true, but I think people use that as a criticism that I don't, I absolutely love Dickens. I will say about Dickens, in every single book, there are 50 boring pages. You don't know when they're going to come. Um, <laughs> and they are often at the very fir- the first 50 pages. If they are at the first 50 pages, then usually that means you've, you're good. There won't be another 50 boring pages later on. But yeah, so if you come across 50 boring pages in Dickens, you just have to keep going. Okay, maybe... I seem to remember in Bleak House it's the first 50 pages that are boring. I probably stopped at 49. <laughs> Bleak House is my favourite Dickens novel. I love it. I like it the is story. massive. I'm... Yeah, it is huge. It's have so... you read any other Dickens that you've liked? Oh, I have read A Christmas Carol, which I have... Hmm. I have enjoyed. And the stories I love, and again, it feels bad to say as a bookseller, but I grew up with my mum and my grandmother watching any TV adaptation of Dickens, Uh watched it, and usually loved it. So the stories feel so familiar, but... Yeah. No, I actually really, I really approve of watching, especially with these old books, watching the thing first. Like, I I watched um, a bunch of Jane Austen adaptations before I was even really able to enjoy Jane Austen. I think it really Mm. helps. Because if you don't, if you're not confused by the story, then it's much easier to kind of get through prose that can be a bit inaccessible sometimes. But um, no, I'm I'm a a massive Dickens. I was, uh, when I read A Tale of Two Cities, again, Tale of Two Cities, boring first 50 pages, I think. And I was reading it on the tube and I, there's this twist and I literally, I was like holding this, you know, old copy, you know, this like 1800s copy of Tale of Two Cities. And I was like, (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) mon dieu. As if you're like, yeah, paid. To, you're like paid by the Dickens lobby right, to like right. do that in public to sell. <laughs> that Dickens is what books. it felt like. Yeah, <laughs> he's so fun and he's so funny as well. He really is. And I also think something I really love about Dickens is that he writes these stories that are, you know, the worlds are always really, really grim and nasty, but the characters always have people who love them. They're never like completely alone in the world. There's always someone 
who loves them and is nice to them, even if the way in which they love them is to us a bit unhealthy. But all the same, it's still always there. So I, I think he's there's a kind of optimism to his grimness, which I think is really lovely. No, I'm I'm, a, I'm a, I've got a lot of time for Dickens. I'm worried if I read a biography of him, I'm going to find out things I don't want to find out. But uh, the, never mind. yeah, the ongoing problem with yes, any. <laughs> Any creative is like, do I want to know too much about them? Just in case. Mm. But um, it's interesting you talk about the kind of the the love amongst the kind of the grimness or the kind of the light in the darks. That feels very key to In Memoriam, even in those, you know, really bleak moments. And you talk about these letters and you use letters, newspapers, role of honours and things like that in the book so effectively that you find yourself looking through those lists of names as the characters do. You're looking for names that you know. And that was, yeah, that was very effective for me. And just, I'd love to hear you talk, you know, more about oh, that. No, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, that's absolutely something we wanted to get across because I, I had that experience when I was reading the newspapers because you would get to know a boy from the way he had written his cricket reports or what things that people had said about him or poems he had written or whatever. And then suddenly you'd see his name um, or you would have seen his name in The Wounded or or he would have been name checked as like the only li living brother of a pair of brothers. And then you would see his name later. Or for instance, you know, um, I remember this kind of jolt I felt when I saw Siegfried Sassoon's brother's name. Mm. Um, he had a brother called Hamo, and I don't know very much about Hamo Sassoon, and Sassoon doesn't talk about Hamo very much. But one of the only anecdotes I found about Hamo was that when Sassoon confessed to his older brother Hamo that uh, Sassoon was gay, Hamo said that he was too. And that's the kind of only thing I know about Hamo and then um, I'm just reading and suddenly you know I was just looking through a list of names and suddenly there's Hamo and you know there you go he's dead and that, it just had this you just it was like this experience of looking at a long list of just words and one mm. of them coming out and meaning so much more to you than any of the others did I really wanted to get that across in the novel so I'm glad that that worked for you. Oh, absolutely. It's done so effectively. And I can think of several scenes in which characters are kind of looking through those lists and you feel as they do, you're kind of, you know, you're looking out for those names that you know. And you're left with that feeling of, you know, you say about that, that one name will mean something to you. But of course, for a lot of these people reading it, there is a one scene in particular I'm thinking of where so many of the names mean something and there's references of, oh, I played him at cricket once. And, mm -hmm. and even just those little associations, it must have been just as devastating that that was a whole life just just gone yeah and i think there's a little bit of you know that the indiana jones what's the what's the word the um the place with the storage unit at the end of one of the indiana jones films. <laughs> yes yes Do you know yeah. and they go and they yeah. they put away the ark of the covenant in yeah. the dangerous thing storage unit and then it pans out and you're like oh my god there's so many dangerous things in this storage unit and it's like i think there's that right you you know you're reading you're reading the book and you care about your character and whether mm. he'll live and then you know you see his name or whatever and he's dead and you're like oh god but there's you know 27 other names on that list and every one of those is just as meaningful even if you don't know about why it is meaningful to you know what i mean mm. so it's it, that i mean that was the feeling i had when i was reading them you know and that absolutely comes off in the book as well and of course another very key element of the book is the relationship between elwood and gorn and there's a really interesting look as well about the attitudes to you know, homosexuality, gayness, as we call it now, or, you know, whatever the terms were then, I think, in, was invert still a term then? I know I that was invert a was the polite way of talking about right, it. Right, yeah. okay. 
that was the that was the kind of respectable mm-hmm. uh, respectable term and it, it's really interesting because it, it, it does for me what um it makes me think of something like um the strangest child by alan hollinghurst which kind of looks at the changing attitudes to homosexuality and it's what i really loved about this book is you know there's a great moment and again without sort of spoiling anything where this is talked about openly between a person who is you know gay or, or, or bisexual with people who are straight and is expecting one opinion but actually gets quite the opposite and um you know w- were you did you do research into how it was viewed at that time or did yeah. that come before you started writing no i mean okay so Firstly, I did not want to write a book about homophobic hate crimes and mm. everyone hating gay people. I was like, God, that doesn't sound um, like anything I-, I want to read. And I also think there's other people who are better equipped to write that. And I did a lot of research. And among the aristocracy, there's often been a sort of live and let live tolerance to homosexuality in many countries. I don't know why that is exactly. Um, like, you know, in France, under Louis Fourteenth. Yeah, he's the Sun King. I remember reading that, you know, his brother was flamboyantly uh, and very much out uh, gay. And he, you know, he even started this like secret group of gay men who had to all swear they would never sleep with another woman except to sire a child. So they would sire a child. Then after that, they weren't allowed to sleep with women anymore. And they were having like gay orgies in the like parks of Versailles. And Louis XIV's very pious wife was like, can you control your brother and he was like what do you want me to do he's my brother but meanwhile right so like that's that's one world but then meanwhile in france at this time homosexuality well sodomy was uh punishable by being burnt at stake so these two things were true at once so yeah i I mean that's not specific to world war one so what i have in the book is there's this sense that at the boarding school there's one set of rules which is that as long as you are popular, as long as you're good at sport, as long as you're doing it quietly in the dark and no one really knows about it, it's fine. And as long as, you know, it's going to finish, you know, by the time you leave university, like you're going to go and marry a nice girl. Those are the rules. And those are rules I kind of picked up on by reading between the lines of a lot of books from the time, especially books like Alec Waugh's Loom of Youth, which was one of the more explicit depictions of this. And even so, it's not very explicit. You know, you really have to kind of do your reading but then he gets to the, the characters get to the war and there the rules are completely different you know it doesn't matter if you're popular or good at sport and you're doing it quietly in the dark like if you are caught you will be court-martialed you might be shot you'll certainly be you'll have a career in your life ruined and bring shame upon your family and so these two different sets of rules are both true at once and you know our characters are teenagers so Elwood in particular is he's a very brash reckless teenage boy for whom things have always worked out and I think it's just really really hard for him to understand that the stakes are different at the front than how they were at school he's just like it'll be fine you know and Gaunt is a bit more nervous and is a bit more like no I I don't think you understand that this is real life like this is not we're not playing at, at this anymore like the stakes are very real but yeah, when it when it comes to the friends, this might only be on my website. I think my historical note had to be radically shortened because it was like 12 pages long. But um, the full thing is on my website. And I think it is not inconceivable that a gay man would have as many supportive friends as uh, I have depicted in this book. It's not inconceivable. I think it is improbable, but it's not completely out of imagination. You know, I think I think there were definitely people who had that experience, but probably fewer than people who didn't. 
Mm. And I just chose to depict the one that I wanted to depict, really. And it's interesting you say that, actually, because I think that's one thing I found really refreshing reading about it is, yeah, you do come across a lot of um, fiction that depicts, you know, gay people or bi people or queer people in which it focuses on the fact of, like, you know, they were treated really badly. And for me, it was really wonderful and refreshing to realise that laws exist, but human history, you know, kind of proves that even if a law says something is wrong, that doesn't mean that everyone is going to immediately, if they hear someone, you know, is gay or something, that they're going to sort of banish them or, or treat them differently. And it was really lovely to kind of see that humanity at that time kind of uh, mm. expressed. Well, you can see it a little bit in that anecdote I mentioned about Sassoon telling his brother. You know, he wasn't mm. that close with his brother, and yet he still felt, A, the need, and B, the ability to confess his yes. proclivities to his brother. And his brother was like, yeah, me, you know, so it's... To me, that's a very telling anecdote. I think that that shows a lot about the possibility of being open in certain circles, right? And I think mm. Sassoon was a very... Um, he was in very, very rarefied circles of you know aristocrats and artists and so i think it might have been more acceptable for him than say um the protagonist of maurice ian forster's maurice which is also a, a, another great classic of, of the genre and he at some mm. point tells his doctor and his doctor is just like oh don't be ridiculous you're not a monster and but that i think is because maurice is um, is much more like stolid middle class i think i don't i, I don't i'm i'm hungry so i think i might just be making oh. things up <laughs> <laughs> well that's probably a good note to say that we're approaching the end now and i think it's always nice to end on a reading from our guests to hear um the, the words of their book so i was wondering if you'd mind reading from in memoriam for us of course i was really stuck when you asked about this i find it really hard to single out a passage that has no spoilers mm, and that I don't think sounds sort of naff out of context. So what I did instead <laughs> was I had a look at some of the people who tagged me on things on Instagram and uh, and some of them had quoted things. And I was like, all Great, right, this okay. one, this bit keeps getting quoted. So people have liked it. Uh, okay. Whether or not I do, that's another thing. But there you go. So this is just two paragraphs or so. So this is a scene from... It's from Elwood's perspective, and it is from Lower Sixth, which is when they're, yeah, they're like 16, 17 years old. May 1914, Lower Sixth. It was spring of Lower Sixth, and Elwood was so in love with Gaunt that his thoughts ran wild with anger. Gaunt was woven into everything he read, saw, wrote, did, dreamt. Every poem had been written about him, every song composed for him, and Elwood could not scrape his mind clean of him no matter how he tried. He thought perhaps all the pain would sour the love, but instead it drew him further in, as if he were Mark Antony falling on his own sword. And it was a magical thing to love someone so much. It was a feeling so strange and slippery, like a sheath of fabric cut from the sky. Sometimes he imagined what Gaunt would look like when he was old, and he knew with dizzying certainty that he would love him even when Gaunt was balding and wizened and spent. That's beautiful. Thank you, Alice, for um, you sharing that with us. In Memoriam is out now and uh, it's available in mostly books, in the store or online. In fact, I was talking about recording this podcast just earlier on the shop floor. A customer approached me. We were talking about her experiences. Her father had fought in the First World War and he had become a father later on in life, actually after the Second World War, in which he was in the um, the sort of dad's army i've forgotten the actual word for it and we were talking about it and i talked about the story and she went home with a copy which is um i think always a brilliant sign it's a fantastic book so whether it's from your local independent or wherever you choose to get books from i highly recommend it alice Wynn, thank you so much for joining us on mostly books meets 
Thank you so much, Jack. It's been a pleasure. Mostly Books Meets is presented and produced by the bookselling team at Mostly Books, an award-winning bookshop located in Abingdon, Oxfordshire. All of the titles mentioned in this episode are available through our shop or your preferred local independent. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out our previous guests, which include some of the most exciting voices in the world of books. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Happy reading.